0: I'm Rob Skinner, and this is the Rob Skinner Podcast. Join me today as I talk to Gordon Ferguson. Gordon has served as an evangelist, elder, teacher, and author. And in this episode, he talks about his journey to Christ, the secret to his happy marriage with his wife Teresa, how he got connected with the discipling movement, what went through his mind as he lay close to death from cancer, what he'd do differently if he had his life to do over again, and what he sees as essential for future growth in our family of churches. All this and more on the Rob Skinner Podcast. Welcome back to the Rob Skinner podcast. My goal is to inspire you to live a no regrets life, make this life count, and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. Hey, this is Rob, and I want to say thank you for listening to the Rob Skinner podcast. I am really looking forward to talking to Gordon Ferguson, one of my heroes in the faith since I became a Christian back in 1986. He's recently been battling cancer and nearly died. His reflections as he teetered on the brink of death are really powerful. I'm also starting a new semester at the University of Arizona. Every year I always feel nervous about the start of school, just thinking about evangelizing and reaching out and also the excitement about meeting new people and the people that are gonna get saved. I'll be supporting Kevin and Erica Liu who are leading the campus ministry. My plan is to help build this college ministry into a fountain of future disciples and leaders who will spread the gospel and plant more churches. I started this podcast at the beginning of the COVID pandemic to inspire people, to multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. I wanted to learn from others and share what I've learned over the years. It was so great to see so many of you at the conference and to hear how you benefited from listening. I felt so connected to people at the conference. It was fantastic. If you're enjoying the podcast, I'd like to ask you to support it on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Rob Skinner. That's patreon.com forward slash Rob Skinner. Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. This will help me cover the cost of production, equipment, and enable me to continue to produce useful and inspiring material. You'll join a community of like-minded disciples who want to multiply disciples, leaders, and churches and who want to live a no-regrets life and make this life count. Thanks again. I'm here with Gordon Ferguson. Gordon, welcome to the program. Thank you. Good to be here, Rob. Now, Gordon, I've known you since late 80s when I was a baby Christian. You were in San Diego at the time and would often come up to San Francisco and visit Tom Brown when he was leading the church there. And those were great days. I just remember being so inspired by your preaching. So it's, it's a real blessing to be able to spend this time together.
1: Well, thank you. I appreciate you doing uh, the podcast. I know a lot of people get encouragement from it, and if I can contribute to encouraging people, uh, that would be great. Absolutely.
0: Well, Gordon, let's go. Let's go way back. How'd you become a Christian?
1: Well, that's uh, that's a complicated answer to that one. <laughs> I, I heard at the uh, conference a few days ago someone tell their conversion story, and. Somebody met them, cold contact, invited them to a Bible talk. They went, started studying, got baptized in two or three weeks. And I thought, wow, I wish I had such a, an easy story. But uh, basically I was raised in a very I was raised in a group that called themselves Church of Christ, but it was different than most of us would think, even from the mainline Church of Christ, as I call the more traditional churches of Christ. Uh, I write about it in a book I wrote called My Three Lives. And I think uh, the edit, the uh, publisher put on there uh, One Man Three Movements, but this was my first movement. It was mm-hmm. a very unusual, small, weird church that kind of turned me off. I did get baptized at a church camp when I was 13, uh, but I never trusted that to be a real conversion. I didn't repent, I did not change, etc. I was pretty much turned off to church, but then my wife kept wanting to go to church. She was raised in the Baptist church, and when we got married, we were pretty young. She kept wanting to go to church, so we uh, occasionally did. Maybe every two, three weeks, she could persuade me not to go fishing, but to go with her to church. (laughs) And and, uh, So finally, I just said, "I, I can't go to yours for Uh, some definite reasons that I told her, but she said, well, I'll go with you. So we started going to a more traditional type of Church of Christ. Mm. And even though I wasn't into it, I did it only for her. Uh, God worked it out for us to go to one church that had a, a guy in it that was a uh, unique ball of wax, I would say, <laughs> uh, but he liked to fish and he found out I had a fishing boat and he asked me to take him fishing, which I thought, wow, that's the last thing I want to do is get hooked into a fishing trip with a preacher guy. <laughs> but, uh, I didn't know how to say no. So I said, yes. And it turned out this guy was just amazing. Mm. And, uh, he helped me fall in love with Jesus. Uh, my life totally changed. I got the preaching bug, wanted to become a preacher etc so i started living uh the life of a disciple a long time before i got baptized as one i see so later when i was actually uh in that san diego setting that you mentioned that was my first uh, entrance into what we then called the discipling movement Uh, but at that point uh there was a i was teaching the right things but i realized that my baptism was not accompanied by the kind of repentance I read about in the Bible. So I was baptized again in San Diego just before I left.
0: I see. So now, like in the
1: 80s, late yeah, 80s? Yeah, that that would have been uh, 87. Okay, okay.
0: Well, let's, again, how did you and Teresa meet? How did you guys get together?
1: Okay, that's a simpler story. We uh, uh, went to the same junior high school. Okay. And so we met when we were about 12 years old. And both of us were uh, band kids, so we got put in a lot of classes together. We didn't like each other at all. In fact, it was definitely uh, oil and water. Uh, We didn't get along at all, all the way through high school until Uh we were seniors. And when we were seniors, I was in a school with a lot of ROTC guys, about half the guys in school were in ROTC, pretty good sized high school. And so they had a practice of electing women to be the sponsors for the officers in ROTC. And so I was company commander of one of the companies and uh, they had this basic popularity contest. And Teresa's best friend was my sponsor and Teresa was my exec officer sponsor. And uh, they had these uh, very nice looking white summer uniforms. And when I introduced her to the company, uh, all the sponsors, but when I introduced Teresa in particular, something happened. (laughs) There was was a spark. She looked so awesome in that uniform. And I thought, you know, I should reconsider this. So we started dating that uh, that fall and very quickly thought we would get married. And we did four years later between our uh, last two semesters in college.
0: Okay. So you, this is, you have an accent, so I'm assuming this is the South Texas.
1: Yeah. We're both raised in Shreveport, Louisiana, which is sort of, uh, Baja, Texas. It's right across the border from Texas. So it's more like East Texas.
0: Okay. Okay. So you're both from Louisiana and Gordon, how old are you? Like when, what year was this when you guys met?
1: Uh, well, the year we met would have been probably 1955. We graduated high school in '61, in college and together in '65. Uh, I'll be 80 years old in October, and she'll be 79. Okay,
0: so you're you're turning 80 this year.
1: Yeah, in a couple of months. Wow.
0: Okay, so you're born in what is that? What does that mean? 42. 1942.
1: Okay. Yeah, we. We were the war babies. A lot of people aren't familiar with that. They're familiar with the boomers, which came along slightly after us, but we were the ones born during World War II.
0: Exa- you, you never hear anything about that, about that generation.
1: Uh, but, but there was a generation called the war babies, or the war generation I guess war babies is all I ever knew. But uh, for example, uh, they built new schools for our generation. Uh, we went to a new junior high school. That's where we met. And so it was actually a a larger generation boom than most people realize. Wow. Okay.
0: So you guys you guys went to college together same same place? Where, where'd you go? Yeah. Uh,
1: Northwestern State University. It's in uh, part of uh, Natchitoches, Louisiana, which happens to be the oldest city in the Louisiana Purchase.
0: Okay. Now what so, for those not familiar with Louisiana, what part of the state is where? Where I mean, is this up in the north where Duck Dynasty comes from, or
1: what? What are we talking about here? Uh, it's actually sort of in the middle of the state, and when you go on south, you get into the real Cajun culture, which most people think of when they think of Louisiana. And as I said, I, I think uh, my part of Louisiana, the northwest part, is more like East Texas. But uh, Nakatish is in the middle, and so the uh, students in the school were about half from North Louisiana and half from South Louisiana. Uh, North Louisiana is mainly Protestant, South Louisiana is almost altogether Catholic, and so there was, was quite a mixture in that school. It was very interesting uh, how we came back Sunday night if we visited our weekend parents, uh, you know, that the Southern group would come up having partied all the way up <laughs> and the North Louisiana guys would have gone to church and had uh, lunch with their parents and driven back uh, under blue laws and no alcohol. So,
0: <laughs> okay. So, all right. So it wasn't a religion. You didn't go to Bible
1: school. You weren't,
0: no. you weren't really super religious at that time.
1: No, I was, I was very much worldly Okay, the school. We were in our Mascot was Demons, the Northwestern <laughs> State Demons, and that fit quite well. Uh, it was a wild school, party school, and I was right in the middle of all of that.
0: Okay, so it's it's a little hard for me to imagine that, but in any case, okay. That, so how? tell me, from that point, maybe you can just give me a quick overview of where you went from there and, and how you got to where you're at. now. just give me a, a broad overview of where you've lived and served.
1: Uh, well, I, we got out of uh, college and both taught school. My wife was a, a sixth grade teacher with a minor in library science. And I was a band director, actually. I was a musician guy. And uh, Louisiana was a good place to do that. I did, I played trombone and I did a lot of Dixieland and dance bands and uh, escapades, fill-ins and all kinds of things and uh, taught school. So I was a junior high band director then a high school band director. And then uh, about four years after uh, we got out of college I had gotten the preaching bug as I mentioned from my uh, fisherman preacher friend and so I went back to school and uh, I think I was 27, went to what was called a preacher school, a very intense two-year program that went through the entire Bible, a verse at a time. So it was very text-oriented. We had other classes, preaching classes, interpretation, etc., but it was mainly uh, textual study. And so I went through that two year program and then went up to the Northwest to uh, Vancouver, Washington in a mainline uh, Church of Christ. And I was actually tutored. We, we were uh, holding personal evangelism workshops and the guy that was doing it was pretty well known and he got too busy. And so they needed someone else to do it and it wasn't that big a church. So they wanted to hire somebody young that they could afford and, uh, would work for a lot less than he did <laughs> and, uh, that they thought had potential to hold those workshops. So I ended up through a weird, weird series of events being the one that they hired and this guy that, that, uh, mentored me and how to do the personal evangelism, personal evangelism workshops had actually been a professional motivational speaker and he was really, really effective Wow! and he taught, he taught me a lot in a hurry. And so I did that for about two and a half years, and then I was invited to come back to the School of Preaching, uh, mainly because of my focus on evangelism. They felt like they needed to have a lot more evangelism going on, so I taught all kinds of courses. I was one of the regular instructors, but I did uh, teach a course or two in personal evangelism, as well as preaching in Romans and Revelation and a lot of other courses. So I did that for four years. Then I preached for a church in the area. I quit full-time at the uh, preacher school and still taught some part-time. But I then uh, preached for a church in the area for three years. And then after that, went back to the Northwest to Tacoma, Washington a mainstream church. That's about the time that I met the discipling movement.
0: Okay, so let me interrupt you right there. Who, right. First of all, who? What, what was the name of the preacher school you went to?
1: Uh, Preston Road School of Preaching okay. in Dallas, Texas. And is that still, still there? It is not still there. It ceased to exist a few years ago. You still have the bigger one, which is Sunset School of Preaching out in Lubbock, Texas. Right. That one still operates.
0: Okay. And then your mentor, the guy up in Vancouver, Washington, the professional speaker, who was that? Uh,
1: his name was J.T. Bristow.
0: J.T. Bristow. Okay. And so he continued to do that after you left? Right. Okay. Right. So during this this period of time, we're talking the 70s, is that when this is going on? Yes. Okay. So go ahead. And so you, you went back up to the Northwest, up to Tacoma.
1: 1981, which is the same year that I met the Discipling Churches. And so I stayed there four years trying to turn that church around. And finally that did not work. And, uh, through another very interesting series of events, also written about in that book, My Three Lives, I tell about how I got invited to come down to San Diego. And that was mo- most of my big event uh, situations were uh, connected to a lot of very strange coincidences.
0: Okay, well, let's talk about that. How did you get connected with the discipling movement? First of all, you grew up in a secular environment. You're you're pretty worldly. You get well. No, wait a second. You 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 kind of in a, a sect within the churches yeah. of Christ, right? but you reject that. So you, then you live a worldly period of life and then you get involved in the mainstream, the mainline. I mean, then you go all in, you become a preacher for it. Yeah. How did you get connected with the discipling movement?
1: Well, in the mainline movement, there was a period of time of about, I don't know, a decade, maybe where churches got evangelistic a lot more than they had been. And uh, they started having what they call soul winning workshops, And the first one that led the way in that, as far as I know, was Tulsa. And so they had this big Tulsa soul winning workshop and, I mean, thousands attended it. And so I got invited because I was getting to be known in the preacher school connection. And I preached a lot in different places. And uh, so I would be invited to speak on almost all of these uh, soul winning workshops. And so in Tacoma, Washington in 1980, uh, I had a night speech. They only had a couple of main speeches per day, but I happened to have one because I was a good friend of the guy that organized it. (laughs) And so uh, I ended up doing a night speech and Chuck Lucas heard me speak. We had been on workshops before doing classes and all of that, but Chuck heard me do a main speech. And he was the one that started everything down at Gainesville, Florida, which led to all that we eventually became. So Chuck then uh, advised Tom Brown, who was the campus minister at a mainline group in Boulder, Colorado. They were about to lose their pulpit guy. And uh, Tom was the campus minister. And so Chuck advised him to talk to me and see if they could persuade me to come up and be the uh, pulpit guy, but I could also help train uh, his guys in campus ministry, uh, train them in the Bible. And so Tom then met us at another Northwest soul winning workshop the next year in Spokane, met him on an elevator, uh, Teresa and I did, and he started talking with us about the possibility of coming to Boulder. so I told him, Tom, I've already got a group from Tacoma that's been working on me for a couple of years to to move there, so I'm not interested. But he kept on pushing it and contacting me, and we were quite impressed with Tom. And so he wanted me to send him some tapes. He said they had a pulpit committee, search committee. He wanted me to send him a few cassette tapes, and uh, that's the, the mode. Instead of a thumb drive, it was a cassette tape. (laughs) So I sent three sermons reluctantly, but one of his elders uh, heard the tapes, and one of them was very, very strong on evangelism. And the point basically was, I don't care what your role is. You still have the responsibility to win souls. Right. And one of his elders heard that. And I mentioned elders and deacons and preachers and all that by name. I don't care what your role is. You still have a responsibility to be evangelistic. And this one elder listened to that. And he told Tom, that's it. Uh, We're done with Gordon. He's not coming. We're not going to interview him. We're done. Wow. So he was offended by my tape, which uh, I could have cared less. I was not intending to go there anyway. Right. But I think Tom felt badly and sort of, as a consolation prize, he invited me to come speak at the uh, Rocky Mountain Evangelism Seminar in March of 1981. I remember it well. That was my first introduction to anything uh, of the campus ministry movement at the time. I had met some of the guys at at, the soul winning workshops because they invited them to speak, Chuck Lucas in particular, But anyway, I went and spoke at that, and I was blown away with everything that I saw and heard. I I thought they had people stand up that had been baptized in the last two years, and almost the whole audience stood up, and I, I was just blown away. Wow. And so I did a talk at that. No one knew who I was. I could all week hear people looking at the program and saying, Gordon Ferguson, who in the world is that? No one knew who I was. Whereas in the mainstream churches, I was pretty well known. Right. For a young guy, right. especially. Right. And uh anyway, uh, after that I started being invited to speak at all kinds of things. Uh that summer I spoke at the Gainesville uh Florida Evangelism Seminar that Chuck ran. Okay, and I so- spoke in that. Let me let me start you right summer. there. So,
0: at that time, there was sounds like there's a lot of crossover between the mainline church and right. the, you know, the crossroads movement or whatever. Can right. you talk a little bit about that? Like, what was going on there? What was the relationship between those churches?
1: Well, it was very mixed. Uh, what happened is uh, Chuck trained a lot of young men and women to do what he had done. He had come into a mainline group and developed some ways to be a lot more effective. Uh, Bible talks, they called them soul talks back then, but Bible talks, meeting on campus and dorm rooms and really going after it, and uh, very boldly really going after it. That was right in the early stages of the sexual revolution in full bloom, and I went to one campus Bible talk, and they started in Galatians 5.19, <laughs> uh, works of the sinful nature, and if you do this, you're going to hell, et cetera. I mean, right. they were very bold, but they were baptizing hundreds of people. It was right. countercultural to the core. Right. One of my concerns for some of our young people today in the church is they're trying to find ways to kind of go along with the culture. Right. The uh, Crossroads guys were totally countercultural in every way, okay. And uh, it was pretty amazing to see. But uh, as a result of that, there were people like me that got interested because I was evangelistic. There were other people. the The old guard was very turned off by it and called them a, a cult. And mm-hmm. there were a lot of things written and said and preached and uh, th- there was a, a quite a controversy with the younger group, so it was a mixed bag, but uh, Chuck trained these people, and they would go into a mainstream group, like Tom Brown went to Boulder, and uh, different ones went to different existing churches of Christ and tried to start a very evangelistic uh, campus ministry group, but it was so different that the majority of the older people couldn't handle it, and many of those churches split. And so finally, they just uh, started with, Kip especially pushed it, Uh we just need to start new churches. Right.
0: Okay. So back back to, you're at the Rocky Mountain Evangelism Seminar. Let me get back to your track on your overview of your career.
1: Okay. So uh, after I spoke there, then everyone you know, most of the leaders met me there and started inviting me to come and speak. And so I spoke at the uh, Florida Evangelism Seminar every summer uh, for the next four years before I actually got into the discipling movement. But I went to Boston, I went to places in Florida, I went to places in Montana, I went to a lot of other places. Uh, San Francisco, one of those back in those days before I, uh, you probably were there. But uh, anyway, when it was the Berkeley ministry, Berkeley I, I Church,
2: would,
1: mm-hmm. yeah, Uh so I started traveling and doing a lot of speaking at those conferences as well as t- trying to institute what I was learning with the Bible talks and discipling partners and all of that. Tried to ins- institute that in the church I was in for four years and had some success in it for sure. Uh, we definitely baptized a number of people uh, but getting people to uh, go along with the discipling partner relationship, that was actually the biggest challenge. Mm. The church was fairly evangelistic. Uh, Maybe the best one that I was in up until I got into the discipling movement, in fact, but getting people to buy in to being open with their life, uh, that was the hard sell. And so I came in after a meeting, I told the elders that, uh, had three elders. I said, uh, we need to have a discipling time once a week. And they agreed to it because they didn't want to lose me. They mm-hmm. liked my preaching. They didn't want to lose me. Right. So they agreed to it. But one day after I'd gotten with one, one of the elders was very uh, open to it. He was great. Right. Really was great. He was full-time on staff, a great guy, very evangelistic, open with his life. I mean, he, he had the right heart. Uh, One of the other guys that I got with, um, he did it only under duress, basically. Right. But one day after meeting with him, I got so frustrated. I came home, and I I just thought, I I don't know if I can handle any more of this. Four years is a long time to try to turn a church around that doesn't seem to want to turn around the leaders, the elders, at least. And so I came home, and we'd done a lot of moving by then. Uh, back in you know Texas, Northwest, Texas, Northwest. So I was thinking my wife is really not going to like it. Our daughter was in elementary school. Our son was in high school at the time. I thought if I bring up another move possibility, my wife will freak out. And so I asked her, all this is in that book, My Three Lives, by the way. But uh, anyway, I, I asked her very gently. I said, uh, how are you feeling about the church here right now? My wife's a very gentle spirit in very uncharacteristic ways. Uh, She turned around and she said, uh, I'm sick of it. We're wasting our time here. They are not going to change. We might as well leave. Wow. And I almost fainted. (laughs) But my my wife wasn't even seeing a lot of what I was seeing in the discipling churches, but she was sold on it. And so she was having discipleship partners, and she and we had we had a couple of grad people who had graduated from uh, University of Florida and were there. And she hooked up with one of those gals, and they were doing Bible talks all over and baptizing people. My wife was all in without even knowing that much about it, except what I told her I had seen. Wow, that gives you an idea of how spiritual my wife is—a <laughs> a lot more than her husband. But at any rate, she said that that day. And I thought, wow, I I almost fainted. I couldn't believe she said that. Mm. But she said, I'm sick of it. They're not going to change. The leaders are not going to buy into it. We might as well leave. The next morning, I, I kept office hours. So the next morning, I'm in my church office. The secretary buzzes me and said, you got a call from some guy in California. And so I answered the phone, and one of the elders at that church in San Diego, George Havens, was on the other end of the line, and I had talked to him and Ron Brumley quite a lot. Uh, They had questions and had me come down to the church there uh, at least once, but we had talked a lot. And George called me and said, listen, uh, our guy is going to go to Boston for more training. We'd like you to consider becoming our evangelist. And uh, again, I almost fainted. I I looked out the window (laughs) up at the sky and I thought, God, what are you doing here? What are the odds? What are the odds? What are the odds? The the very next morning after that (laughs) talk with my wife. So we ended up uh, interviewing with them uh, during the Christmas holidays and agreeing to come, which we did in uh, June of 1985. We moved and officially became a part of what already we had been. Uh, had our heart in and we're doing a lot of or trying to.
0: Wow. Okay. So that was an exciting time. I mean, I became a Christian in '86. So you got there June of '85. It it must have been an easy sell. I mean, you go to visit San Diego in December of of any year, and that's a pretty nice place to go visit. Coming from Tacoma, Washington, right? <laughs> yeah. Must have been awesome. A little bonus aside from this the spiritual factor. Right. But uh so okay, so the, the person who left was is that Andy Lindo is that was he leading Andy the Andy Lindo left
1: and, okay. and almost all the staff left.
0: Okay, okay. Ed Townsend, was he a part of that? He,
1: he Ed left. Townsend, Jess Asper, uh,
0: uh, Yeah, all those guys would resurface the, later in different the, places. The Mattins,
1: uh every everyone left almost except Jeff Chacon, who was an intern and single at the time. I did his wedding later. Right. And uh so we needed help. I didn't know anything about how to lead a discipling ministry. Okay.
0: But okay, let me ask you this, Gordon. I mean, this it was explosive. I mean, that period of time in San Diego was just I mean, Sam San Francisco was was, was growing rapidly too, but they were like sister churches at the time. Right. And I mean, I would hear, we'd go down for the evangelism seminars in San Diego. You guys would come up to San Francisco. Why was it so explosive? Can you share some of the highlights and why you think it was growing so quickly when you went there? You know,
1: th- that, that was a staggering time, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I went, all we had left was a few interns. So basically, I wanted Greg Marutsky and I had been talking about working together. He tried to get me to come to Boulder a second time. I actually did interview that time. And the same elder that had uh, (laughs) a reaction to my sermon uh, audio that he heard, he and I locked horns in that interview process within five minutes and it was done. Hmm. So Greg was uh, not all that happy about it. He had wanted me to move to Boulder. He had just bought a new house and wanted me to move to Boulder. And uh, he was not that excited about joining me in San Diego, but uh, the elders and I met with Tom Brown, and we basically blackmailed him. We said, Tom, uh, we're sending you money to help in San Francisco. We want to keep doing it, but if we don't get some help and keep this church doing well here, we won't be able to do that financially, which was true. But we said, we need Greg. You left him there in your place when you left boulder you need to get him to san diego and tom did huh. so that was an interesting lunch where we discussed all of that but greg moved there and greg had contacts he was young he was 27 26 27 years old but he had contacts and so we started hiring people like mike and libby rock and had them come in and Jack and Kathy Rosenquist and others, but we started hiring people and bringing them in. And so that was a ton of help. Greg, we couldn't have done it without Greg. He uh, kind of oversaw the campus and the singles. I worked with the teens and the uh, marriage until we kind of got into the regional approach to it. But uh, anyway, we worked together. He was, we called him the co-evangelist and he did He spoke quite a lot, uh, but he really connected with a younger crowd. I was 42 when I went there and considered old. You were 42.
0: I, I remember. My impression is like you you were an old timer. <laughs> old timer.
1: 42 <laughs> yeah. years old. Yeah.
0: You'd be considered a spring chicken these days, but back yeah, then I just I remember they, where'd they find this old timer?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's exactly true. It was funny. They thought I was old. A lot of stories connected with that. But anyway, one of the things we did that was fundamental is I recognized very quickly that the church had been trained to do whatever they were told to do the large majority all the young people mm-hmm. if you said jump they said how high on the way up right i mean it was just amazing i told my wife very quickly i said i don't know how to build one of these but i'm i'm going to try really hard not to mess it up right and so one thing i recognized though is that they were very legalistic and so I just told the elders we they need some uh, they need some grace. And so we started meeting for midweeks and I did a series on Romans, which I have a book on Romans. We started doing a series on Romans on midweek. So they already had down all the actions to do, but they needed to get the right heart and do it for the right reason, the right motivation. And so I started doing Romans and it was like throwing a match on a gasoline can that was open. Wow! I mean, it. We just started exploding mm. with growth, mm. and we didn't have followways. It was very, very rare anybody left, and when someone did, everyone else would say, "What they left? Why would they leave?" Mm. Because we were all as busy as everything, uh, knocking doors, doing campaigns, studying with people, baptizing. Uh, The year before, I think they had baptized 115. That was their best year. So in the interim before I came, I'd agreed to come, but I didn't come till mid-year. So during the early part of the year, not very many baptisms, but once we got there and got things in place and started teaching Romans and really trying to organize it the right way, We started baptizing a lot of people. And I remember asking at a Bible Talk leader meeting, how many do you think we could baptize this year? This was in the fall, because most all the baptisms came after June because uh, other leaders were ready to leave and they weren't really that invested, I think. Right. So one person said 140 or something like that. And, uh, I said, bro, I appreciate the faith, but I'm not quite there, (laughs) but we ended up baptizing 165. Oh my gosh. In a fall in like a four month period. Most of it, I would say was in the, in the second half of the year, the large majority of it. I, I don't know the exact count, but we baptized 165. And the next year it was like 220 and the next year i left uh before that year was over or right right at the end of the year and anyway one of those years we had 385 more than one a day oh my so gosh so it, it was a wild time it was it was a group in a high school of about 500 or so on sunday mornings when i went there it was 1250 and in and in uh el cortez convention center when i left now, we did have move-ins. We had people move in uh, from other places, but we baptized a ton of people, and as I said, we had very few people leave because the motivation was there.
2: Right.
1: We did teach a lot of grace, but we also taught a lot of this is what you do with the grace and helping the world know Christ, and right. so it, it was a magic time. Wow. It, Most everyone, if you talk to guys like Robert Carrillo today and people like that, that were like campus guys, um, or anyone almost that was there, they would, they would tell you it was a very magic time.
0: It really was just a a kind of a golden period. Just seemed like effortless in, in a way. Yeah. Um, people just seeming to get baptized. There was a lot of activity of course, but it just seemed like God's power
1: was there. It was amazing. Greg came up with this idea. He said, you know, what we need to do is have a campaign. We called it the Life Campaign. Love is for everyone is what that stood for. He said, what we need to do is get everybody to take their vacations and we'll rent out uh, the dorms at San Diego State because they don't have that many people in the summer. And he said, "We, we can knock doors and street preach and Uh, study with people and, and do all this, and I thought, this is crazy, but we'd been doing so many crazy things. I said, okay, Greg, let's talk to the elders, and we talked to them. They said, yeah, let's give it a go, so almost the entire church took vacations, moved into the dorm rooms at San Diego State, and for two weeks, we street preached, knocked doors, got on (laughs) <laughs> the trolleys and shared our faith. So the trolley moved to the next car at the next stop. And I mean, that, that's what we did for two weeks. Wow. That a lot of people. That's amazing. That's amazing. We did it two years in a row, actually two summers. I remember hearing about that. That, that was amazing. Amazing. But that time. was Marutsky's idea. Well, yeah.
0: Greg's Greg's an awesome guy. Now you move. What, I mean, why'd you leave? Here you are, you're baptizing like crazy. Why in the world would you leave that situation?
1: Well, that was back when Boston was trying to kind of unify all of the discipling churches. And so a lot of guys were moving there. Tom Brown had moved there. Uh, Sam Lang had moved there. There There were some pretty heavy hitter guys from the campus ministry movement who had moved there. And uh, so we got invited. Uh, the two elders, Ron and and uh, uh, Brumley, and 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 George Havens and Greg and me got invited to meet with Kip and Bob Kemple and Al Baird. And we met for three days. And the elders were saying, "Why should these guys move to Boston? Right. I mean, what we're doing there? Why? Why would we do that? Right." And it was more in trying to unite the churches, but of course we were told we didn't know what we were doing. (laughs) And so we needed more training because we didn't know what we were doing. Oh my gosh. Uh, that's what we were told, Mm -hmm. but it was more an effort to, I think, unify the discipling churches. And so it took a three day meeting. And finally I just said, okay. And I just, I don't know. I felt Moved to do it. Uh, I didn't want to do it. That was not something that I jumped at the chance to do, but we agreed to do it. And uh, I sort of led the way in doing that, and Greg was willing. And so he moved there and led uh, the MIT ministry, a campus ministry. And then I moved, uh, he, he moved in the summer to start the fall semester. And I moved at the end of the year in December and led a house church of 30 some people. So uh, it was a very interesting move. I've been asked by people as I've told the story, do you regret moving? Do you feel like it was the right thing? And bottom line, I do, because I uh, became an elder in Boston at a very crucial time and uh, i also then became a teacher and writer i would not have written books had i not moved there and given the overall impact of uh, what i did in boston uh, i think it was the right move but the early stages of that it didn't look like the right move and it didn't feel like the right move it was totally a faith move be willing to go anywhere do anything give up everything uh we preached it, so I decided yeah. I had better practice it.
0: So you don't regret it? you? No. Okay, so,
1: you're, so you, you ended up staying there quite a while. Yeah, I stayed in Boston 16 years. I was appointed an elder fairly soon uh, after being there uh, with Al and Bob. And at one time, we were the only eldership in the whole movement
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, because the ones in uh, San Diego resigned. I think at one time we were the only three in the whole movement. So it was a pivotal time. And we were interested of course, in raising up other elders and had a part in that. And, uh, I think all of us continued to work on seeing that happen. So I I think the influence from Boston, uh, was important enough to have done it, but it was like leaving heaven. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Leave San Diego for a number of reasons. Right. It was a delightful time. Right, right. I can
0: just imagine that would be quite a cost to count. Okay, so you you were there for 16 years, and then why'd you leave there, and, and how'd you end up in, in Texas?
1: Uh, well, actually, we got two places in between. Okay. Uh, our daughter and her family were in Phoenix, And so we moved to Phoenix at the end of 2003 and stayed nine years. Uh, The last several years of that, I had gotten off staff and started a teaching ministry. And during that time helped start the Asia Pacific Leadership Academy. And so I was over there doing a lot of teaching. And now Roland Monhe, one of the teachers on the service team directs that, it's still going. I went back a few years ago and did a graduation class and taught a course and uh roland's done a fantastic job with it and uh anyway i helped start that we also started a similar program in uh, kiev ukraine we had uh, in both of these had two tracks of leadership training we had one for the ministry guys that were on staff and then we had another one we called a shepherding track and so we were training future elders we were training uh, Family group leaders, things like that, and so for those that that part of it just kept growing. There's only a certain amount of ministry guys you can you could train, but the uh, shepherding track kept growing and may still be be growing in in uh, Asia. Certainly not uh, Kiev, but in Kiev we had people coming from all over the old Soviet Union to be a part of the shepherding training. It was amazing. Oh how much that grew in the years that we were going. So during the last part of my nine year stint or our nine year stint, I was doing a lot of training and Teresa worked with me, especially in the Ukraine part. Uh, She worked with me a lot in that one. And so we made many trips to the Ukraine and people from all over the old Soviet Union came in for the shepherding part of that. And uh, so we did that, worked a lot with the church in Houston Uh, for a couple of years. And so I remember counting up one year when I lived in Phoenix, I spent one-third of the time in Phoenix and two-thirds on the road. Wow. So uh did that for several years and then moved to Los Angeles to Orange County and spent two years trying to help resurrect the Pacific School of Ministry that had kind of fallen by the wayside. So I moved there mainly to teach. Uh, their staff guys, uh, Bible courses, and uh, did that for two years, and then moved to Dallas after that. Our son was on the planting to Hawaii in 1989, and he stayed after he graduated. He married there, had his three boys there, and they stayed there 25 years, but they had moved to Dallas. Uh, Our daughter by marriage, Joy, her sister and her family had moved here, And they wanted to be close to them. So they moved to Dallas. And so six months later, we did to be around our grandsons that we only got to see a couple of times a year. Uh And so all three of them were last week at the uh, conference in Orlando. Wow. One's 24 and the youngest is 17. Wow. That's that's awesome. So you've got
0: adult grandchildren. So do you consider yourself retired now?
1: uh, I... I try to say that, but (laughs) I usually say semi-retired because I'm still writing. I've I've still written books and I've got two websites. And uh, then I thought, okay, I'm going to quit traveling long distances. My wife has some lung issues, uh, COPD actually. So traveling long distances is kind of out of it now for her. And so I decided to quit doing the traveling part overseas at least and then COVID hit, and all of a sudden we got Zoom stuff. So I'm still speaking on programs and doing teaching sessions and all of that on Zoom uh, all over the world still. Wow. So retired doesn't quite fit.
0: Right, right. You're still still active. But it, it's clear that it seems like your evangelistic, like your your preaching career really peaked out there in San Diego. And then you, sh- you there's a shift, like more into eldership, pastoring, and teaching. You, and teaching and really got into the teaching. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like what? Yeah, I mean, you've written a ton of books. Right. Why'd you start?
1: And got any favorites? Yeah. Well, basically, in 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 Boston, I was an elder and an evangelist, functioning in those two roles. I was leading regions. We had different terms for them back then, but I was leading a region and being an elder and doing some teaching. But then in uh, 93, Randy McKean, who was the congregational evangelist, uh, said, I want you to put on a a teacher hat here and let that and the elder hat be what you do. And so at that point, uh, they freed me up to start doing a lot of that. And I started writing, and then every time I would, I I at first wrote booklets. And so I had some booklets that became pretty well-known, like Justified on Romans and Death Before Denial on Revelation. And Mm -hmm. they would be long study guide booklets, and they would put cassette tapes with those in a plastic package and sell them. But then I'd be invited to other churches to do it and all of that. And every time I wrote a booklet and later a book, Randy would have what he called a Bible Jubilee, and we would meet as the whole church, like in the Boston Garden, and I would just teach that subject all day long. Would have, of course, some other things interspersed in that singing and so forth, but I would teach all day. And Randy started all of that. Randy and Dan Bathon together, who was our world sector administrator, started uh, DPI with Tom Jones, Tom and Sheila. And uh, I started writing then and turned some of the booklets into books or just wrote books. And so in 1995, I had the time to do a lot of writing. I was still functioning as an elder. That was a busy job in a place like Boston, but I also was freed up enough to do the writing. And so I started writing full-length books in uh, 95. So from 93 to 95, I did a lot of booklets and teaching days and started staff training. We, we had a number of courses that we would teach to all of the staff. And so a lot of the guys now like, uh, uh Kevin Miller and Chris Zillman and names like that. Now that they, they were in my early <laughs> ministry training that I did in Boston, they were the kids so back then. They were kids back then in, in college or right out of college. So Anyway, a long time ago back in the nineties, but, uh, how how many, anyway, Randy, Randy was the brainchild of all of that and set it up for me to do it, had me do the same thing, a lot of staff training in Europe. So we did a lot of travel to Europe and went to new plantings and tried to encourage them. So Teresa and I spent probably on average two months a year in Europe. One time we spent uh, six months in Paris, lived in Paris six nice. months. Nice. Oh boy. That's awesome. So that, that was a pretty cool gig there, I'll say.
0: <laughs> That's a nice setup. I love <clears throat> that.
1: But I have I owe Randy and Kay McKean a lot because they got us on the teacher track and the writing track. Yeah. And so one of the early books I wrote was uh uh Prepare. No, well Prepared to Answer was the first one on a lot of different church doctrines. But uh, the second one was Victory of Surrender, <clears throat> which is one I had really wanted to write. And that has become the crowd favorite. And Tony said he took a stack of them to the conference and they were gone quickly. And that usually happens. It's kind of a rite of passage for a lot of young people to read that book.
0: That, okay. I remember you preaching that lesson at in the, yeah. in the 80s and just getting blown away. I mean, it was just like, Whoa, can you talk a little bit about how you even came up with the idea and, and just what, what just summarize it a little
1: bit? Well, uh, surrender has always been a challenge. It's another word for the ultimate trusting faith to me, but, uh, it's always been a challenge. And I read a book that, uh, had a title similar to that by E. Stanley Jones. And uh, I was smitten with it and realized that surrender is an all-or-nothing thing. And I was still in the mainland when I got onto this thing. But uh, someone recommended a couple of books that I read that convicted me like everything, like when I was still in the mainstream group, the last one. And so I started preaching about it and praying about it and trying really hard to live it. And uh, there were many things that had happened in my life that were that I write about in the book, and in other people's lives. Uh-huh. And there's some beautiful stories in it about what people did that are blow away. And so those stories, uh, out of my life and other people's lives, just uh, they have a profound effect when you hear of what people did in the face of challenges. You know, cancer and death and death of a mate, death of a child. I mean, there are a lot of illustrations in that book that uh, that moves you. They move me. I, I've read that book. I told someone I wrote it as a reference book for myself. <laughs> I, <clears throat> I've read it at least a dozen times. I've gone on retreats. And I'll have about three books that I will reread that have a profound impact on my own life. And that's one of them. I've read that book. Right, right. Back during uh, 2003, when the churches were going through a lot of challenges, after a particular staff meeting, Jeannie Shaw, this was back when Wyndham was alive and he and I were uh, fellow elders, but Jeannie and my wife pulled me aside and said, Gordon, you're in a bad place. You need to go away by yourself and have a retreat and read your Book on surrender, <laughs> and I thought about it a minute, and I said, "Well, something's wrong with me, so <laughs> I'll do it." And I did. There are a couple of others I read as well that I have read more than one time. But right. anyway, that,
0: that that is an amazing that's an amazing concept in 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 books. So that's fantastic. Now let's talk a little bit about you and Teresa. You guys. There's always, anytime I see you together, there's a sparkle. I mean, there's yeah. there's a real, you can sense the chemistry between you guys. There's right. something going on there, right? What what's made the difference? I mean, is there? I, I know you know God's blessed you, but like, what have you done? What's helped you to have a relationship that's vibrant?
1: Well, um, I, I wrote a book. I didn't have planned. I wrote three books one year back in 2016. I didn't have this one planned, but I decided to write it because I talk about my wife a lot in sermons and stuff. I've gotten other guys in trouble. Their wives, one of them counted how many times in a teaching day I mentioned my wife Hmm. and I think it was 50 something. Wow. And uh, so this guy's wife, he's a good friend and they've got a great marriage, but she said, you never mentioned me anything like that. <laughs> so I, I've gotten a few other guys into trouble. But anyway, I decided <laughs> to write a book and I called it Fairy Tales Do Come True. Wow. And it has 16 principles, 16 short chapters. It's not a long book, it's a short one. But there are 16 principles that we think have contributed to making our marriage a fairy tale come true. But I would say the bottom line thing, honestly, is that we both, it took a few years to get there, but we both got to the point that God became the all-consuming priority in our life, and so there's never any doubt about what we wake up thinking about and go to bed thinking about, and it's always going to be about God and what does God want of our life. Why are we here? What's our purpose? What, what are our gift uh, sets? Uh, what, what, what does he want us to be doing? Right. And it's the same way right now. I mean, nothing's changed. It's been a long time since I've been a paid staff member, but it's the same thing every day for us. I mean, all day we're thinking about who can we influence? Uh, who can we encourage? My wife has been instrumental in helping several people who had left the church for a long time come back, and they're all doing great. She mentioned three people this morning that she has helped come back to church, and uh, so she's on the phone. She's writing. She's talking. She loves to talk, and so she's on the phone talking to people all the time, and we're we're thinking of who can we influence, Uh and so we have a little cottage uh, that we got a few years ago that's across the street from a lake in east texas a little two-bedroom cottage and we spend a fair amount of time there but we know everyone that lives in that little area and we reach out to them and my wife was talking this morning about this one that uh she's reaching out to that i've also talked to her and her husband you know a number of times and so uh we, we just have a priority that unites us. Right. And so my wife, you know, there's some guys, their wives are in the ministry because their husbands want to be, they are not so much into it, but my wife's always been as much into it as me. She's always wanted to be that since she was a little kid, she's always wanted to be helping people know about Jesus. So, Anyway, the priority thing there and us putting God first, which means that when we're messing up with each other or with anybody else, uh, we're always going to be open to be challenged about it from God's word. And so that priority is is the key to our marriage. That's but fantastic. there is a spark. It'll be 58 years in January. Oh, congratulations. Congratulations. So uh, the spark's still there.
0: Gordon, you've been battling cancer. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? What's, what's been happening?
1: Well, I got diagnosed officially with cancer uh, back in January. And since then, I have had radiation treatments and chemo treatments. The crazy thing that happened, I did well for three weeks uh, doing those treatments. After a lot of testing prior to that about exact location, et cetera. And uh, so I was going through the treatment and after three weeks, the uh, chemo had an effect on me that's very, very rare. I have an enzyme deficiency that a very small percentage of the population has. And about the only thing that affects it is this particular chemo that's used for two parts of the body and uh, it, there had been court cases about it in France and whatever. I mean, it kills people. Hmm. And it nearly killed me. But I happened to be in very good condition from a ton of walking that I've done, especially during the pandemic. And so I was in the hospital for 23 days and five days. I went one afternoon, Easter Sunday. That afternoon, I started having horrendous diarrhea. And by the next morning, I had to be helped out of the car into a wheelchair to get a radiation treatment. And at that point, it was obvious, I wasn't going to be able to continue the treatments and didn't know what was going on. It was just, uh, I knew it had to be a reaction to the chemo. But five days, I just slept and had problems and Hmm. hardly ate anything. And so I I went and got some fluids put in intravenously one day on a Tuesday. And then that Friday, I I was back at a nurse practitioner uh, who was working with a chemo doctor. And she basically thought I ought to go in the hospital. And she finally asked the right question because I didn't want to go in the hospital. She said, do you think you'll be okay if you go home? And I thought to myself, then I said, No, I think I'll die. Wow. He said, Okay, well, that gives you your answer. Because both uh, I and the doctor think you should be in a hospital. So we went and checked in at that point. And so the first 10 days was wild and crazy. I've got some Facebook posts in which I've told some about it. I've got two articles called a Roller Coaster ride with God part one and two <laughs> that are on my uh, teaching website, gordonferguson.org. You
0: just, you can't stop writing even when you're uh, yeah. in crisis. <laughs>
1: well, I was asking for prayers because I thought I was going to die. So I, I have a podcast series that I'm going to start in the next uh, few weeks. And, uh, with insights I got from that 23 day stay in the hospital, but I'm probably going to entitle it sitting with God on the brink of eternity. Wow. Because I thought it was 50 50 that I live or die the first 10 days. They gave me nothing but saline solution. So I went probably almost 15 days without food. Uh, and there were medical reasons. They were afraid to give me what they call a pick and give me, uh, uh nourishment intravenously but they eventually did and i started getting better and finally got out of the hospital but anyway i couldn't go back on the chemo obviously but i did finish the radiation treatment later and hopefully it got it but i don't know for sure right now they say it keeps working the radiation for about three months at least so they're not going to do testing until september so I will not know till then if I still have cancer or I do not.
0: I mean, you look really good. You, I, I expected you to look much worse than you do. Your your face is full. You're not super skinny. You, you've you've got flesh on your face and your your body. So you're looking pretty good. So you've had a must have had a pretty good recovery since you got out of the hospital.
1: Right. I. The first uh, almost three weeks, I was so weak. I thought, well, this is going to be my new normal. I've just lost so much strength. Now, I did lose a lot of weight. I've gained just a little of it back. I'm actually down to where I wanted to be. I had gained (laughs) some weight that I needed to lose. (laughs) So I've gained back a little of it, but not much. I lost over 20 pounds. And uh, so I kept pushing myself. try to get outside and do and do walking and the first time around the block just around one block I thought I shouldn't have done this I'm not sure I can make it back to the house but I did right and so I just kept pushing myself and finally at about the three-week mark it kind of kicked in and now I'm back to walking like I was before same speed I walk very fast it's exercise walk
0: how uh, how far are you walking
1: uh I, I was doing three to five a day, three, three to five miles a day, uh, probably six days a week. Now I'm doing like three days a week, and I've been doing four miles. And so I did four miles yesterday. I skipped today. I'll walk again tomorrow.
0: Right. Okay. So when you're going through that and you're so sick, how how did that affect your relationship with God? Like what, what insights did you see? as you thought about, Hey, I could, I could die here.
1: Well, um, the, the nights were horrible. I, I was had hallucinations and delusions and it was just weird, but the odd thing is I could, if somebody was talking to me, I could kind of pull out of that and really talk and make sense reasonably well. And so I called my, my son of course lives close to me here in uh, the Dallas area. So I called him and his wife and three boys up because I thought I I told them I I may die here. So we had a very serious talk, and I wanted to help them help my wife uh, with some immediate things. If I die, here are some immediate financial things. Here's how to help take care of her, et cetera. I'm the one that does the finances. So I needed to kind of pass that on to uh, my oldest grandson, graduated and with a degree in business and has a financial job now. So I said, get out a pen and paper and, and take down what I tell you here. Mm-hmm. So some people are crying because of, of contemplating me dying. And some are trying to concentrate on what I'm trying to tell them. <laughs> so it, was a, it was a very emotional night, shall we say, but I told him at the end of it, I said, guys, uh, I've been trying to teach you how to live well. Right but I also want to teach you how to die well because mm-hmm. we're all going to do it. Yep. And so it's a very sober night and I'll cover this in the podcast that sure. I'm going to be doing. Right. But, uh, I had, I couldn't sleep hardly at all. I mean, it was very hard to sleep. So I just kind of catnap day and night, but most of the time I was sitting on the brink with God, talking to him and I had some insights that to me were pretty phenomenal. In fact, I was so pumped up by the time I got out of the hospital. And it wasn't because I got better and I was getting out of the hospital. It was because every night I'm talking to God most of the night as a friend. Right. Him, were talking. And so typically when I would try to go to sleep, I'd say, God, I don't know if I'm going to make it or not. I don't know if I want to make it or not, because if I do make it, then that'll mean I'll have to have another time maybe like this to die because we're all going to die. So I'm not sure going right now might be the best shot, but all the days ordained for me were it written in your book before one of them came to be. So you're going to have to figure that out. Uh, That's your problem. That's above my pay grade. I'm going to try to go to sleep. Mm. So those are the kind of conversations that I had with God. And uh, I got some insights. I've always struggled with my view of God uh, because of my, legalistic upbringing, but I got some insights that really, really helped me and I think will help other people. And that's why I decided to do a series of podcasts, but I've written a lot of stuff up that I want to cover, written about 40 pages. So I've got maybe 20 different topics and they're not necessarily related. Some of them have nothing to do with how I view God. Okay. Wait, I... Gordon,
0: you got to give us a teaser here. I know you're going to do your own podcast, which is awesome, and I can't wait to hear it. Can you give us a little bit of a a preview?
1: Okay, well, I I have tended to see God uh, as harsh based on a lot of Old Testament examples, et cetera. I mean, he was pretty strong medicine in the Old Testament a lot of times. And because of the way I was raised, I tended to see God more as creator and judge, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, not nearly as much as a father, especially an Abba father and a friend. And I wasn't even sure how he wanted me to see, tell you the truth. And and so I've had uh, the times that I was teaching Romans, I was pretty straight on it. Uh, cause my Roman stuff's really good. Right. <laughs> it helps me <laughs> and, uh, helps a lot of people. It's amazing. I've gotten comments in the last two weeks. I had one brother up in his eighties who called me and left me a message with tears. Hmm. And this guy's been around forever. He's a, he, he, he's a, he's a great disciple, but that Romans book, has helped him to the point that in leaving a message for me on voicemail, he was crying. And uh, I've, I've had two different people talk to me in the last two weeks about Romans and how that book has affected them and uh, what people are doing with it, etc. So that's, that's one of my favorite books. So when I was teaching Romans a lot, I, I think I had a healthy view of God, totally. Mm-hmm. But uh, somehow As I've not taught Romans as much, I kind of reverted some. But in the hospital, I I boiled it down. I said, okay, uh, if I had to describe what is the ultimate heart of God, if I could only pick one word, what would that one word be that describes God better than any other word? And I came up with one that... To me was a monumental revelation. It's biblical as everything, and it's not what you think. And I'm not gonna tell you what it is <laughs> the podcast. There you go. Okay. Well, but once I hit on that, <laughs> it had ramifications that went in all directions. Wow. And it 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 I was so pumped up. I talked to Tom Jones right while I was still in the hospital, maybe just before I got out or maybe right after I got out. He actually asked me, we we, we know each other backwards and forwards for decades. Tom actually asked me, have you ever thought about the fact that you might be bipolar? Because he thought I was in such a manic state, a euphoric state, that it was unusual for me, which it was. And i told him tom you know me well i'm i'm depressive man i'm not the kind of guy that <laughs> stays in a man, man, manic state at all i'm the depressive type but uh I, but i understand why i said it because i was so pumped up now that kind of gradually faded some uh after i got out but it was because of the experience with god that i had hmm. to know that i was near death and could die and a number of people have died from this particular reaction. Uh, it's been to court in France, and it's a discussed issue. Hardly anyone knows what the uh, enzyme deficiency is. The, the name is a long name. Even, even doctors I've asked don't know what it is. Uh, and I think the disclaimer that the pharmaceutical company had should have been a lot clearer than the one that they do give, but that's another matter. Right. But at any rate, uh, I happen to be a very, very unusual, rare case in in this regard. Wow! But the experience in the hospital, you know, knowing that you could die at any time, it was it was surreal, but it wasn't scary. I wasn't afraid. I wasn't afraid to die, and I literally signed off about every night, just about like I described <laughs> there. I don't know if I want to go or stay. Because hmm. if I don't die, I'll have to go through something again in order to die. And I'm not sure I want to do this again. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, anyway, it was a very interesting experience. But I got so many insights out of it from so many different directions. Hmm. And I'm going to cover all of those in, in the podcast series. Because it, it was, I mean, there were just some amazing things that happened. I, I'll I'll give you one other. Uh, A sister in our region got a banner printed up just telling me they love me and were praying for me whatever but it was printed up it was about six foot long and maybe two and a half foot uh, the other way it's a a horizontal one landscape and uh, she took it to a Marriage retreat we were having here in Dallas. I was in the hospital. They were having a marriage retreat that Roger and Marcia Lamb were were uh, uh, conducting, speaking for, and so she told people come up and sign it. And so a lot of people just wrote a nice little short thing. Well, my daughter by marriage, I call her Joy, our son's wife, but she's our daughter. Anyway, Joy brought it up to the hospital, and there was a space. Uh, where a shelf was, that it fit right under that shelf perfectly, perfectly, as if it were made for it. And she taped it in there. So everyone that walked in saw that banner and asked about it. And I talked to people all day long for 21 days about my life and God and me and God and the church I mean, I had the most amazing conversations. That alone could help explain a lot of the euphoria because it just pumps you up to be able to talk to people about God and to find out so many people were willing to talk. And so that was one thing that I will write about that one because I ran into some unusual responses, positive responses. Uh, There are a lot more people out there that have God on their mind than we think. Right, right. Definitely here in the Bible Belt. There's no doubt about that. So that that was an amazing experience. Wow. And so I talked to doctors and, you know, everyone. I had all kinds. Of, I was in a teaching hospital where a medical school is, oh, the I largest see. one in Texas. So I had all kinds of specialists coming in all the time. Mm-hmm. I had students coming in. Even though I was about to die, I had students coming in, coming in as a part of their curriculum to interview patients, and that was kind of wild. I'm thinking, here I am, thinking I may die anytime, and they're in here wanting to talk with me, and I got a tube down my nose into my stomach, and it hurts to talk, but I forced myself to go ahead and talk, and I, I had so many conversations. It, it, was, it, it was amazing. That is amazing.
0: God, God used that to help reach out to people. What, when you look back on your life, I mean, there had to be some time of of reflection and and evaluation. Is there anything you do differently?
1: You know, I think it's all a matter of kind of how we deal with the priorities in our life. Uh, I have in the, I heard an elder say one time in a church I was preaching for back years ago. He was teaching a class, and he said, never give up your life for anything that death can take away. And I immediately made a note of that. In every Bible that I have, I write in the front of it, never give your life up for anything that death can take away. And so in looking back at my life, um, I feel good about a lot of it. Uh, But I would say that there were times I was raised in a family that was my my dad's side of the family. They weren't church people at all, quite the contrary, uh, for the most part. Uh, Maybe some later in life, but they were a party family, and I liked that part of it. So I was drawn to them rather than my mother's side, which were the weird little Christian groups side. They were weird, I thought, and they were. (laughs) And so I was drawn to my dad's side. And uh, so they were big into outdoor stuff. And so hunting and fishing, and my dad was a very good golfer. I never was as good as he was. But I, I had a lot of hobbies. If I had it all to do over as a young guy, especially with children, I would have made my children a lot more my hobby, and I would not have been doing all the other stuff that I did but it's a way I was raised and a lot of church people I knew were kind of the same way. They had these, these hobbies. And then Louisiana hunting and fishing were two of them. Uh, I remember when Barry Beatty died uh, at his memorial, Lynn said, if I recall, uh, people asked me what was Barry's hobby. Barry didn't have a hobby except his family. His family was his hobby. Huh. If I remember that correctly, uh, a lot of years since Barry died, he was one of my early acquaintances in the discipling movement and a magnificent man. His wife Lynn is now remarried to Doctor Ottenweller, and so that's quite a love story with Mark and and Lynn. They both lost their mates and they're married to each other. But if I if I recall correctly, uh, Lynn was. And Barry were some of the early ones I met in the discipling movement. And, uh, that, that is one thing I would definitely reevaluate is how I spend my time, uh, I think there's a place for recreation, but I think I was too much into my hobbies and I would change that part of it for sure.
0: So like fishing and hunting and letting, letting that go and making your, your
1: family, your kids more of your focus spending more time if, right if I could get them involved in it right now my son he wasn't much into that I took him some right but he never clicked with it my daughter might have clicked more with the fishing part than he did but I didn't try to make that a priority uh, fortunately for me my father was pretty harsh when I was young he improved with age a lot <laughs> and I helped him a lot when I got spiritual I helped him a lot right. But, uh, when I was young, the, the one thing that we did have though, is we hunted and fished together. right? And then later bowled together in a league when I was in my teens and, Mm. uh, golfed when I was older, he didn't have enough patience to teach me when I was young, so Mm -hmm. I took it up on my own when I was older. And then we played a lot of golf together. Right. But, uh, anyway, uh, I could have involved them. If you involve your children in your hobbies, that's, that's a good thing. Right. But if you're doing those independently, and then I was very busy, I, I would probably reevaluate some of what I agreed to do because there was a period of time when my kids were like in their teen years, when I traveled like crazy, when I met the discipling movement, I was, I was in the airport all the time. I was preaching locally in uh, Washington State in a, a mainstream church, but I was traveling like everything, going to all these other places. Uh, I might have said yes more than I should have to some of that. I could have uh, evaluated more how much I was at home. Teresa was fine with it right? because she was so into the whole concept of ministry and discipling and evangelism and all of that. She was fine. She did not feel like a neglected wife. We had a great relationship even through that period of time. But I do feel like I <clears throat> did not... Uh, spend near enough time with my children, and then I did not talk with them enough about what I was doing and why. I did not explain enough. I think they needed explanations, and had I given them enough explanations about what I was doing and why and where my heart was and all of that, they might have been okay with that, but I'm sure they felt neglected at times, rightly so.
0: Well, let's let's shift the focus here and talk a little bit about um, our family of churches, the ICOC, the, um, the the Church of Christ that we're a part of. Like when you take a look at it, what it's clear things have slowed down. It's right. it's certainly not where it was in the '80s or '90s. Um, but what what do you feel like needs to happen for our family of churches to grow going forward?
1: Uh, I think we had a tough time in the early 2000s. Those of us old enough to remember that, understand it. And a lot of it was about motivation. Uh, We were doing a lot of right things, but we were being pressured and motivated in ways that I think were counterproductive in the long term. In the short term, they seemed to work. In the long term, not. Not. Now, I think our motivation in San Diego those years, uh, because of the focus on grace and all of that, I think that motivation was great. And I I don't think people felt pressured, even though they were busy as everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think we motivated in some wrong ways. And so because of that, a lot of people have backed off of doing things that are right things that we should be doing, evangelism being among them. But if I had to say what is at the heart of it, one of my good friends is my publisher, Tony Mulholland. He goes way, way, way back to the Crossroads days. Tony says, uh, our real failure is a lack of discipline. And I thought about that, and I said, when people have asked me, why did you get into this movement? Discipling was the reason. I was evangelistic before that. I didn't get in because of the evangelism, even though the evangelism was a lot more effective. I didn't get in the movement because of the evangelism per se. It was the discipling. I knew that was a missing ingredient, uh, having people in your life. And so the more I've thought about what Tony said, I agree that discipling and the lack of it is really hurting us. And I think when you look at discipling, you've got to look at two things that you're trying to accomplish. The overall thing in discipling is you're trying to help people learn to imitate Jesus. And the two parts of that are Jesus' character, what he was like, how he related to people, how he related to God, what his uh, characteristics were. That's one part of it. The other part of it is his mission. And so discipling is not just sharing all your problems with someone. It's not a counseling session, although counseling gets accomplished uh, when you do have problems. But basically what you're trying to do is help people understand your greatest goal in life is to represent Jesus. You're made in his image. Mm. You are an image bearer of Jesus. Uh, The Bible says that he's the fullness of God. That means that in the flesh he demonstrated God, because you couldn't understand God just from reading the Old Testament. But Jesus was the flesh and blood demonstration. He said in John, uh, what is it, 14 or 16, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Right. And so uh, we had to see God in the flesh to really grasp him. And then it says the church is the fullness of Christ. So we had to see God in the flesh to understand him. People have to see God Jesus in the flesh in the form of his disciples to really understand Mm. Jesus. Mm. And so our task in this life is to represent him, to do what he would do if he were here, to be what he would be if he were here. And that includes his character and his mission Mm. to seek and save the lost. And so a discipleship time covers both of those. In fact, this brother that called me, who's in his 80s, and he's really turned on right now by Romans, and he's just ecstatic. He's so happy with God. It's amazing. This guy's been a great disciple for years. But when I went to San Diego, uh, he and I had a discipling relationship, and I was helping raise him up as an elder, actually, was the idea that uh, they, they wanted me to do. But he great brother. He and I are good friends. He, he was a, a school principal at the time. And he told me, Gordon, here's what I want to do. He said, I have to leave early in the morning. But I want us to talk on the phone every morning at 530. I think it was something like that. He said, I want us to talk every morning. And I want you to help me really stay on top of my evangelism. Hmm. So I want you to ask me, how did it go yesterday in evangelism? And what do you have planned for today? He said, I want you to ask me those two questions every morning at five 30. I said, okay, bro, that's too early for me, but I'll do it. (laughs) such a cause as that I'll get up and do it. And I did.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: But he's a school principal, but that's where his heart was. He wanted to share Jesus every day, and that was discipling. Now, did we talk about other things? Absolutely. Did we shed tears about other things, our sins and our sinful nature and our mistakes and all that? Sure, we did all of those things, but we had a component in it, not only about imitating the character of Jesus, but the mission of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And I think if we don't have those two things, we are not consistently going to be evangelistic. Some of us will. It's built into us. We've done it long enough. It's a part of our character and the way we think, and we're going to do it. We're going to share our faith. Right. But we'd do a better job of it if we're talking to someone about it because we'd think more about it and we'd get help with it and about how to be more effective. Mm. So I don't care how much it's even a part of our nature and we still do it. I don't do it as much as I used to do it, but I still do it. I mean, during the pandemic, that's been murder for me because I didn't want to catch COVID and give it to my wife. She's had pneumonia seven times. Oh my gosh. So I have to be very careful, but I wrote a little book called God. Are we good? It's a very basic book. But I thought of all the friends and relatives I have that I never see. And I said, you know, this is the shortest book I've ever written. But I said, I can send that to them. And I I wrote it for that reason, to be able to give to people that I don't ordinarily get time with, Mm -hmm. or even as a precursor to those that I do, I've given it to neighbors and stuff. But uh, I wrote that little book during the pandemic last year and mailed it to a lot of Relativism stuff and wrote a letter with it, personalized letter to them. And then some, a uh, couple of months later wrote a follow-up letter. I've looked for ways, uh, to keep my hat in the ring evangelistically, even during the pandemic. But if I would talk to someone every day at five 30 in the morning, right. I'm yeah. not, I'm not saying do that, or you have to do it, or even right. that You ought to do it. Right. I'm just right. saying that's the spirit, right. That we need to have that that brother had, Jerry Jordan is his name. But uh, to have that spirit that you want to be like Jesus, both in character, who you are as a person, but also in mission. Wow. And so if we had people we talked to on a regular basis and we included what we were doing evangelistically. I think it would turn things around significantly and help us get the heart back. Right. Uh, why why do I share my faith? It has nothing to do with somebody's gonna ask me about it because no one hardly asked me about it anymore. Right. You didn't ask me about it. Right. Uh we hardly do that anymore. Um, but uh I I just want us to have the heart of Jesus. That's all. Right. If we're like Jesus, we can't help but share our faith. He couldn't help but do that. Mm no way he could have stopped doing that that's who he was that's why he came to earth right and that's why we're on earth is to get prepared never give your life up for anything that death can take away what does that mean Hmm. what cannot death take away it cannot take away my eternal soul and it cannot take away the souls of people that i help know god Hmm. it'll take away everything else
0: Yeah. yeah
1: that's all that it won't take away
0: What, what advice would you give to a person who wants to make this life count? They're, they're looking at your life and you go, okay, this is a life well lived. How can I imitate that? What what advice would you give to them to have that no regrets life?
1: To Wake up every day and pray and say, God, uh, I'm an image bearer for you i'm a picture of jesus i may be the only bible that some people ever read at my job at my school in my neighborhood wherever i may be the only jesus that they know uh, or representative of jesus and so i want to live in a way where every day i pray god if you want to do for me today, like you did with Philip, and lead me to a eunuch-type person that Mm. has an open heart, help me to see it.
2: Mm.
1: In one of those articles I wrote about the roller coaster ride with God, I talk about seeing seeing God, and that God is there. He wants to be seen. He can be seen, and he wants to be seen, not visibly, obviously, but we can see him in our lives. And there are all kinds of things that happen in my life that I, that's God, that's God giving me a hug. Mm. that will be one of my podcast things is, is talking about that kind of relationship with God, where he gives you hugs. If right. you're looking for it, right. God can be seen. Mm. And I can, if I'm tuned in and looking for opportunities, then God is going to open doors for me. Mm. And so whatever I'm doing, whatever my career is. I need to be successful at it. I don't don't need to be taken over by it. I don't need to live for it. I need to work to live, not live to work. But I also wanna be a great representative for God, and I wanna do great in my job because then when I talk to people, they'll say, that dude right there, he's a serious dude. Hmm. He or she does great in their job. And if they've got something going because of God, uh, it might do me good to listen to them. Wow. And so I have heard many stories, as you have, of people on their jobs. And when their co-workers have problems, who do they come to? They come to them Mm -hmm. because they recognize they have a different spirit about them. And they also, of course, work God into all the conversations they can (laughs) so the people know where to come to. That's right. And so to me is to just be recognize you're an image bearer and tell God as you're doing that, uh, please, through the Holy Spirit, guide today's activities. And if something is there, help me to see it and to know how to act on it and to act on it. And it's just that daily influence that we have in our lives that leads to big moments. Mm. We don't have big moments every day. We don't have big moments most days. They're fairly rare, but there are those other days that contribute to making that happen. So every day I belong to God Mm. and whatever he wants to do, that's a part of my prayer. God, whatever you want to do with me today, I just want to be about your purpose for me. Whatever that is, show it to me. I'm all in.
0: So being aware, having an awareness. Hey, I'm here representing God. I'm I'm open to his purposes. Just having your antennas out, so to speak. It, it reminds me of that that old song, Lead Me to Some Soul Today.
1: You know, that, just, I love that song.
0: Yeah, it's a great song. We don't sing it very often, if at all, but it's a the words are a
1: blow away. Really yeah. awesome. And so many examples, uh, I was telling someone about this one the other day. They've translated my books into a number of languages, but one of my books was translated into Chinese. And there was a Chinese brother. These are underground churches, very, very risky deal to be a Christian in China. This brother was on a train reading one of my books that had been translated. This woman walks over to him and said, Is that a Christian book? So he's thinking, okay, what if she's an official? What should I say? Should I tell the truth or should I lie? And he told her the truth. She said, I've been looking for a Christian book. Can I borrow that one? And uh, I think as the story went, she became a disciple. Wow. Wow. (laughs) <laughs> and I, I've got many stories like that where people were just doing something out of the ordinary and got noticed. Right. Stories that are almost unbelievable. I could write a second book on surrender and have plenty of illustrations.
0: <laughs> I'm sure it's on its way. That's that's fantastic. Talking about your books and your podcast, I mean, you you certainly sparked my interest. I, I know you've written so many. Where would people find your books? Where are they going to find your podcast?
1: Okay. The podcast will be on YouTube. I don't have it all designed yet, but, uh, I've got the YouTube channel, uh, and I will put it on my Facebook post. Okay. And of course, uh, I also also have a Facebook page for my, uh, Gordon Ferguson teaching ministry. And so anyone can get on that. And I put a lot of my posts on that because I can only have 5,000 Facebook friends. That's a max. And I've been met maxed out since I started my Facebook page or a couple of weeks after. So uh, I can't have everyone as a Facebook friend, but I have a Facebook page also, Gordon Ferguson Teaching Ministry, that directs people to my gordonferguson.org uh, teaching ministry website. And I got tons of articles on there that people can read anytime. Mm and uh, i will put posts on there about the podcast and how to find that my books are with uh, illumination publishers that's just ipibooks.com ipibooks.com all of my books that are in print are available there i've got one or i got at least one that's out of print uh and probably will not be reprinted uh others of mine get reprinted Occasionally. Got it. Got it.
0: Well, Gordon, thank you so much for the time. I'm I'm glad you made it through that health scare and you're with us for longer. Please give my best to Teresa. I'm really sorry that she couldn't join us on the interview today.
1: One thing you didn't mention is that you and I performed a wedding together that,
0: once. That's
1: right. That's right. Your your listeners need to know that. <laughs> you and I, I co performed a wedding.
0: For Dave and Jackie Peligian, That's right. For my, my yeah. mom, my mother-in-law and father-in-law. Yes. I, I was wondering well, if you even remembered that, Gordon, to oh, be honest. I did. I was uh,
1: <laughs> I had heard a lot of good things about you and I felt I actually felt very honored to be able to co perform a wedding with you.
0: Well that's how I felt. I, I didn't I'm surprised you felt that way. I was a nobody. I did. <laughs> so. I, did.
1: I, I had heard very impressive things about you. And uh, I, it was an honor to be there with you doing that wedding, it was it was, a special wedding.
0: It was, 1993, great, great, great uh, time. That was fantastic. Well, thanks again for your time. Okay. Thank you so much for joining the Rob Skinner Podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, please hit the subscribe button and let your friends know about it and how to find it. Because my goal is to inspire you to make this life count, live a no regrets life, and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. Have a great day and make this life count.